Isaiah chapter 29. Once again, if you don't have your Bible with you, you can take one of the Bibles from the seat back uh, underneath the seat back there, and you can have that as a gift as well if you don't have a Bible that uh, you own. So we would love for you to have that. Isaiah 29, God's power on God's terms. God's power on his terms. There are moments in all of our lives where we just sit there and we go, I have no idea what God is doing, right? It's like, God, your ways are not my ways because I would not have chosen that way. And I'm not choosing this way, but it apparently is your way. In the Bible, God is saying quite often to us, you don't understand but you can always, as we said last week, you can always trust me. You won't always understand me, but you will always be able to trust me. If I surprise you with some sort of trouble, I will also surprise you with the joy that I will bring out of that trouble. You may struggle to believe things like that right now, but what seems impossible is the very thing that God specializes in. He is the God of the impossible. He's the God of the mystery of changed lives. He's the gospel story of Christ being resurrected from the dead, a thing that doesn't make sense to us. It's technically impossible. I always love it when people say things like, Scott, how, do, how in the world do you believe in a literal six-day creation? How could you be so foolish? And I go, well, do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Yeah. So you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but you have a hard time that God could create something in six days. Yeah. So you believe in one form of impossible, but not the other form of the impossible. Yeah. Okay, you don't make any sense to me. But what seems impossible is the very thing that God specializes in. How many of you know people that have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you look at them and you go, that's impossible. I knew them before then. I knew them before now, and that is not in the cards. They weren't supposed to be a Christian. God specializes in that. You know, the, the greatest breakthrough that you may have in life is when you hit a brick wall. The most constructive thing that may happen to you in life is when worlds fall apart. Every time God's church has grown substantially in the history of the world, it is when the world is falling apart. God is the God of impossible. Now, granted, we know some things about God. He's revealed himself to us, right? Through his word. Unintentionally, we can slide into the feeling that we have got it all figured out with God. I've, I've met some people like that where they, they, they've got it all figured out. They know every theological 
backwards, forwards angle of everything. And when I met, meet people like that, that have kind of this air of, I've got it figured out and you don't, oh, Mr. Sky. I go, oh, oh, your day's coming. You're gonna be just like me. We have no clue what's going on. We need to humble ourselves and admit it. We need to accept the mystery of Christ working in us and through us. We need to be okay with that God may somehow jeopardize what we think as what we know. God surprises us. So you need to take a look at what's going on in your life. Look at the reason behind it. I give that. But it will very often be mysterious. And what you are actually seeing is God working. I don't get this, God, but I get that you are sovereign. We'll, we'll wrap up this talk with that point. I really believe when you step into the mystery of God's work, over time and in your life, you are discovering what it means to trust God. Surrender to God rather than trying to control God. Trying to control God is not a good place to be. God will shock you. You won't always figure out what's going on but Isaiah 28 actually alerted us back over in verse uh, 21 of chapter 28 to do his task, his unusual task, and to his work, his extraordinary work, this absurd work, this work that we can't figure out. It's not hateful, but it's surprising. If you are in Christ here this morning, isn't it good that God never gives you what you deserve? Think about that. In grace, he gives you what you need. How many of you need encouragement? He gives it. How many of you at times need confrontation? need a little humbling. He gives that. All of us in this room are pretty complex people. And right down to the very roots, God knows you. And God works through you. And God will see the victory that is needed in your life through you, through Christ. And defeat, as a Christian, is not in our vocabulary. It's just not. The gospel really should be equipping us with a very large understanding of God so that we can make large allowances for how God works. Okay, God, I don't get it, but here we go. And at this point in the book of Isaiah, God is saying, Hey, everyone, my power, 
my terms. My power, my terms. I will keep my promise to you. I have the power. And here is how my power enters into your weakness. God, God is saying, and what we're going to look at here, deal with me as I am. I will triumph. Therefore, yield to me. I will surprise you. Be open to how God works. God has a plan. And we must remember that God's plan is not to just patch together the human existence again. There's no patching in the plan. He is going to what? Remake a new heaven, a new earth, a new you. You will not have band-aids on. So in light of that, lift up your heart. The power of the gospel becomes our experience as we accept defeat in little things at God's hands and respect the mysteries beyond our understanding and embrace the renewal that he promises. I am a new creature in Christ. Amen? And we must remember then the victory of God over all of us. The victory of God over all of us. All of his friends and all of his enemies. Let's read verses 1 through 8 together now. Daniel's going to read it for us. Isaiah 29, beginning with verse 1. Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once lived. Add year to year, observe your feasts on schedule. I will bring distress to Ariel, and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. I will camp against you, encircling you, and I will set siege works against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you, and then you will be brought low. From the earth you will speak, and from the dust where you are prostrate, your words will come. Your voice will also be like that of a spirit from the ground. But the multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust, and the multitude of the ruthless ones like chaff which blows away, and it will happen instantly, suddenly. From the Lord of hosts you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire. And the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all who wage war against her in her stronghold and who distress her, will be like a dream a vision of the night. It will be as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating. But when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. But when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking. But when he awakens, behold, he is drinking. His thirst is not drunk. Thus the multitude of all the nations will be to wage war against Mount Zion. So here we have Isaiah addressing Jerusalem. But why does he call it Ariel? Well, that, that word means the, the top of the altar, the altar part. It's the stone surface of the altar where the fire consumes the sacrifice. Okay, so now that we understand that, because otherwise we sit there and go, who's this girl? It's like, no, that's not what it's talking about. 
altar, stone surface, fire consumes the sacrifices. If you want to find out exactly what that means, you can jump over to Ezekiel 43. Well, Isaiah then, as we see here, can see that Jerusalem itself is, is the altar. Where sinners are worshiping a holy God through a substitutionary sacrifice. And Isaiah says, you know, he's looking at add year to year. Let the feast run and run. Run on schedule. And that's actually kind of a sarcastic poke at the annual round of worship events and festivals and celebrations that are elaborate. They're beautiful. They're supposed to be glorifying God, but what exactly are they doing? They're empty. They're empty. And what Isaiah is saying is, okay, go ahead, carry on with your religious routine, but it's getting you nowhere. It's very much like when you visit Israel now and see hundreds and thousands of people praying at the Wailing Wall. But these are not believers. They're not Christians. They're not praying with Christ interceding on their behalf. So what is it? It's empty. And I know some people have a hard time wrapping their arms and their minds around this, but when someone prays as a Muslim to Allah, that is an empty prayer. It is, it is not heard. Because you need Christ as your advocate. If you, if you are Hindu and you're praying to one of 300 million gods, you know how many gods are hearing it? Zero. The one true God is not listening to that because it's not going through the advocate, Jesus Christ, as a believer. And what was going on here is that there could be elaborate ceremonies. There could be, I mean, you go into some, some beautiful cathedrals. Have you ever been in some of the just, you go into Europe and some of the most beautiful cathedrals. And as a believer, you walk in and you sense one thing, death. It's dead. It looks awesome. But God's not there. He's not being worshipped. You go to the beach and there's a group of people around the fire ring and they've got a guitar there and they're singing to the Lord. Where is the Lord? He's there with them. And two or three are gathered in the name. You see what Isaiah sees in our time as well? on. What's the problem? Jerusalem didn't see both her privilege and her peril. The God that, that Jerusalem worships is a fiery personality, right? A consuming fire. God's not erratic. He's, he's just holy. He just is. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. 
That's why you see this picture of the top of the altar where the fire consumes. And for us sinners, God is both a high voltage danger and an overflowing salvation. Our air conditioning went out again this week. No power getting to the unit. I went up there and kind of looked around and I was like, I know there's something wrong with the power, but I'm not messing with it. I am not a fan of getting shocked, especially by a 220 volt direct connection. I am not trained to handle high voltage. But I also know if someone comes in and fix that and gets that high voltage to work in that machine, oh boy, that is a time of physical salvation. God is high voltage danger and overflowing salvation. And the only refuge from his wrath is his holy love through Christ, our substitute, on the altar, on the cross. In other words, the only escape from God is what? God. But the worship of these people is clueless to both. They're clueless both to the heat of the high voltage of who God is and his wrath and to the warmth of his love. They don't tremble or rejoice. They just go through the motions. So, in Isaiah's sight, they're just wasting time. That's why he goes on to say in verse 2 there, I will bring distress. She'll be a city lamenting and mourning. She'll be, she will be like that top of the altar to me place where the fire of God burns and even in that we face that choice today as well will we worship in a way that will be consumed with God or will it be consumed by God worshiping without the realness of heart means nothing to him and so God goes about his mysterious or some would say strange work I'm going to camp against you I'm going to besiege you I will raise you know this the siege works against you God's on the attack God is on the attack with us how does that make us feel God God's on the attack with me well that makes me think I need to know more about God and figure out what the, what's going on here. I, I need to do some serious business with God so I can know him more. Isaiah doesn't even bother mentioning the Assyrians here, the obvious candidates to fit the scenario of Jerusalem being under siege. God himself is so intimately involved in this we can, we can look beyond the obvious and try to figure out, okay, who's Who's going to be the one that takes me down? If we are under siege, God is the one we reckon. He brings us down into the dust so low that we can barely...
really cry for help. How many of you have been there? That's when, as the gospel reveals, the Holy Spirit enters in to intercede with the groanings that are too deep for words. In Romans 8, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us win, helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's when God becomes more meaningful to us than ever before. When we yield to the victory of God. Three words. Let God win. Let God win. In your defeat, God will lift you from your heart that has that old lust for control and free you from the slavery that you have to sin. Verses 5 through 8, actually, Isaiah turns that around. The one who burns like a fire in Jerusalem will confront the world with the flame of the devouring fire in verse 6. Isaiah is not using future tense verbs here to predict actually a, a, you know, a particular event. He's, he's thinking of the ways of God, actualizing many times along the way and brought to final expression how? Well, the second coming of Christ. He's showing us what God is like. He's saying that the very forces the, through which God may afflict on even his own people God turns that formable human power into dust, into shaft, and he, and you know, verse 5, how does he do that? If instantly, all by himself, without our help. How many of you get caught into the, uh, God needs me on this? God needs me on this one. God will use you. But he frustrates the schemes of those who oppose his cause. And that's what we see in verse 8. How many times have people been hostile to God and think that, you know what, we're, we're going to take God down. We're, we're going to take him down now. How many times in the history of the world have people been hostile to God and they've kind of licked their chops prematurely over the demise of his church. In Acts 23, more than 40 men bound themselves with an oath that they would neither eat nor drink until they had assassinated Paul. How did that work out for him? Years later, Luke wrote that account and Paul was carrying on in full strength. He must have smiled as he wondered whatever became of those 40 guys. At the high tide of the Enlightenment, one of the philosophers of that time frame claimed that by the early 19th century, the Bible would have passed, quote, into the limbo of forgotten literature. How did, how did that work out? John Lennon 
by the way, I don't understand why anyone likes Beatles music. Anyway, just a side note. You, you can debate me on that later, and we'll both be wrong, I'm sure. John Lennon said in one of his interviews, Christianity will go. It will vanish. It will shrink. I lean to argue with that. I am right. And I will be proven right. We're more popular than Jesus now. Are, are the Beatles still a group? I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Well, as one Christian group saying, God gave rock and roll to you. So I think Christianity is going to win out. the victory of God. God besieges us and at the same time defends us. He knows just what to do every step of the way. What he's saying is you know how you win against the wrath of God once again? Rely on me. You need God to defeat God. That sounds bad, but you need God to be victorious over the wrath of God. And that's the mystery. That's the mystery of God overall. He's the God over everything. The God of the super smart and the God of people like me, who are just kind of like, I don't get what that guy said, but I get that I need God. mystery of God over all. Look at verses 9 through 15 as we read together. Okay. Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine, and they stagger, but not with strong the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, it is sealed. And the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Isaiah is so frustrated with the spiritual condition of the people he, he sees in his generation, you know, the, he basically blurts out there in verses 9 and 10, go ahead and be blind. If that's what you want, go ahead and be blind. You have so offended God that even as you continue to worship, he is going to darken your minds from understanding the gospel. And boy, do we see that today. We see that in churches. 
and see, that, that's what you need to understand here. This is a group of people that should know better. They aren't pagan people, pagan culture. They have the temple. They have the celebrations. They have the sacrifices. They have everything that God has instructed them to do and to be and to, and to do in, with their hearts full of joy. But they don't understand. And the key to this section is the picture of two men in these verses, in verses 11 and 12. You have this literate, learned man, learned man, can't even say it right, in verse 11, gets the sealed scroll, what do we see there, a closed Bible, really, he's too lazy to open it up, find it out its ways, you have an illiterate man, an unlearned man, in verse 12, Someone hands him that scroll, but he can't read, and he has no interest in learning. Isaiah, Isaiah sees both responses among the people of God in that time. Both are symptoms of unbelief. Isaiah is saying that God hardens a distaste for his truth into spiritual blindness. So it doesn't matter if you're super smart or you just don't know better quote-unquote, but you're too lazy to learn. Both are wrong. Because you have this distaste, distaste for truth. See, the blindness that Isaiah is lamenting is not the darkness of a pagan culture, once again. The blindness he's talking about is rote worship of the people in the covenant with God. Once again, it's like going into a modern church that may have all the smoke, lights, mirrors going and flaming and may even have people raising their hands and screaming and shouting, but they have no idea who they're worshiping. Because the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men therefore behold I will again do wonderful things with these people this is a different version here wonder upon wonder and, and Jesus actually applied this text to who? the Pharisees who worship God with a painstakingly precise mindset. They were, they were all about saying all of the right things, doing all the right things. They quote-unquote feared God, but their fear of Him, even in the dimension of worship, was only a doctrine to them, really, taught by a human institution. It had no idea of for them what was going on in their heart. It was just a concept in their minds, not a spirit-imparted awareness that was transforming their hearts. Beneath the beautiful observance, they were using the worship of God as a mechanism actually to avoid God, for controlling God, 
for setting limits on God. So it's not just the smoke and mirrors and the super expressionary type of music and worship and everything in the modern sense. It can also be just pure hymns and beautiful ornate buildings and an order of service that is so, so awesome in some ways. But empty. God evasion. God evasion can look good. You can even deceive yourself. Because you may just be wanting to control God and set limits on God. So, what do you prize? empty expression empty traditions or do you really praise God because you can't serve both once again you must choose between authentic worship or blasphemy Jonathan Edwards said it this way Without love in the heart, the seeming gift of worship is but mockery of the Most High. When form replaces freshness of the heart, worship treats God as less than a living God, God's offended. Isaiah says that God visits that type of worship with an unlikely miracle. And we always think of miracles as a miracle that turns out awesome in our mindset. And so in verse 14, he's saying, I'm going to again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And actually, the age of miracles is not over today. And it sounds strange to us, but God is able today to transform head-only religion into empty-headed religion with no answers for real problems. He's going to take the empty religion and make it even more dead. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish. God's not mocked. Jonathan Edwards goes on to say, if we are not in good earnest in religion, if our wills and inclinations are not strongly exercised, we are nothing. The things of religion are so great, the responses of our hearts cannot be used unless those responses are lively and real and powerful. In nothing is vigor in the actings of our inclination so appropriate as in religion, and in nothing is lukewarmness so awful. He ends this section of his book on the fruits of the Spirit. True religion is even a more powerful thing. And its power appears primarily in its inward exercises in the heart, its principle and original seat. 
The Bible warns us that some people hold to the form of godliness, but their lives deny its power. They attend church, but their hearts are often never, never left. You see, we need God. We need the power of godliness in our hearts. Amen? Maybe you're in here today and you you may be on the older side of life. Well, (laughs) older people need the power of godliness in their hearts because they have just a little bit of time left before heaven. They need to be getting ready for heaven. Amen? Got to be getting ready for something. I'm in that beautiful time frame called middle age. When actually I've done the math, it's not real. It's actually post-middle age, but that's okay. But middle-aged people need the power of godliness in their hearts because many people in my age group are tempted to coast. Kind of done my thing, got to the top of my sphere of influence. I'm going to rest on my laurels. I'm going to thus become dull and mediocre. I'm I'm on cruise control. No, I need the power of godliness in my heart. Because that will change everything. Young families need the power of godliness in their hearts because they are forging the convictions that will shape their home and their children's lives for a lifetime. Those who are single need the power of godliness in their hearts because they can gain or they can forfeit a single-minded devotion to Jesus. Students, teenagers need the power of godliness in their hearts because they are being targeted by the world with brilliant and attractive seductions. I spent a few days this week listening to some guys talking about critical theory, critical race theory. That stuff's real, everyone, and all it is is Marxism. Birthed out of Brazil just recently again. And they actually have plans. I mean, this is not something that's just kind of like, ooh, cruise control, and let's see if this messes with the American culture. They plan... 50 years ago to infiltrate the American school system and change it all into really a form of godless communism and it worked. And that's that's where it's at now. And in parallel with that, they made a 15-year plan to destroy the American church. It's in writing. They are in year 10 of that plan. And I will tell you, obviously we know the end, God is victorious. But I will tell you, they're doing a good job of really messing up God's church. 
is the most ununified time frame of the American church ever seen. And it's all because we're allowing Satan in the doors. Because we're not listening to God's word. We're not following God's word. We're listening to the world. And bowing our knee to it in the name of love. Children need the power of godliness in their hearts while they're young and open. Why? To be set apart for God forever. Most people accept Christ before the age of 18 to the percentage of almost 84%. For example, if, if you know a family that's got a son or daughter that is just in trouble, what will be the most help actually for that child well the truth is, is the most help would be seen for that child by seeing a parent enthralled with the sense of the glory of Jesus Christ how in the world could that damage a child they can't because that child might just think if God can change dad and mom, maybe he can change me too. And that's the mystery of God in one sense where he takes the dead and makes it more dead. Where he pours out a spirit of deep sleep. But what's the other one that we do talk about just a little bit more? A lot more. God can awaken you. Ephesians 5.14, for this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You need to bring your emptiness out into the open before him. If you come out of hiding, so will God, quote unquote. He will do a new miracle of grace in your heart. And that's the sovereignty of God over all. He is sovereign over the ruthless, and He is sovereign over the meek. Let's look at these last verses together, starting in verse 15. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made would say to its maker, he did not know. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered as a forest? On that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the belief in everything. For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. Who cause a person to be indicted by a word and a snare in the state of the world, and defraud the one in the right with meaningless arguments. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed nor shall his face now turn pale, but when he sees his children, the 
work of my hands in his midst. They will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth, and those who criticize it will accept instruction. We, we use the phrase sovereignty of God quite a bit around here. And hopefully, you know what that means. And if you don't, come talk to us afterwards and we'll give you a little refresher on what the sovereignty of God means. But you can love the sovereignty of God because God does what He pleases. Psalm 115.3 We read part of Psalm 115 earlier together this morning, but earlier in that psalm it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Our God is free. He is supreme in the universe. And He will never, ever be bound by man. Our unbelief, the unbelief of people around us, will never neutralize God. Actually, our unbelief is where God starts out with us. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. The practical atheism that Isaiah is exposing here, that's really the American way of thinking. The spirit of the modern times is the spirit of really self-sufficiency. Who sees us? Who knows us? But that blindness, that thought cannot defeat the sovereign God that we follow. Human defiance is the madness out of which His grace grows something new. It's the raw materials He's using to build His kingdom. Isaiah takes a look at the forests of Lebanon, a picture really of human nobility and might. God will cut it all down, humble it to a common field, and an ordinary field, this prophetic eye discerns this awesome growth that's to come. And someday it's going to be a mighty forest. And the values of the human society now, they, they don't make sense. But God is promising to change everything. meek are going to obtain a fresh joy in the Lord as one translation says in verse 19 fresh joy fresh joy is in Christ who floods the world with his word a, a beautiful picture of the spiritual vitality of his believers and it's not a mid-course correction in the plan of God Oops, we need to change things. So now we have the new covenant. This is the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. And that's what he's saying in verses 22 through 24. God has been moving in this direction from the beginning. This is the plan of salvation. He began it in his sovereign grace. He continues it in his sovereign grace. He consummates it in his sovereign grace we trust him in that however perplexing his strategy may be to us along the way our part is humility the meek the lowly the humble 
the ones that get that they're not in charge. God is. Our part is humility. Our part is repentance. Not just general and vague repentance, but detailed and thorough repentance. We bring it out of the dark, we bring it into the light. That doesn't sound generic. will obtain a fresh joy in the Lord. The poor among mankind shall exalt in the holy house of Israel. That is what God's plan is for us. This is his ancient covenant purpose. He does a strange work, a miraculous work, a wonderful work to get us there. He gives us Christ. And in Christ alone, we are saved. Will you trust Him? Will you, will you look at verse 16 and go, yeah, you know what? I, I am not equal with the Father. I, I, I'm the plague. I'm going to let him mold me and make me. And only when he molds me and makes me into a new, wonderful work that is a miraculous work through Christ, only then I will experience the joy of the Lord. So that's my encouragement for us today. Trust him. Follow him in weakness. Wherever he leads. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time and your word. May we trust, may we obey, may we understand the mystery of you overall.